This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. We often talk about how poor, sometimes even terrible, religion reporting is. There are bright spots. One religion writer that I enjoy reading, Bob Smetana, has recently written a lengthy and detailed piece, Fallout Over LGBTQ Spouses at Calvin University Captures Broader Evangelical Divide. Are there any holes in this reporting? It's a story that, well, it's going to be told again and again, not only at Calvin University, but at Christian universities across the country in the years to come. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. First, what can parents learn about Christian college realities from this Calvin University story? They can learn a ton from this story, and you could almost print it out on paper and then get yourself a couple of differently colored highlighter pens and mark different sections of this, especially if you are the grandparent or the parent of some young people who will be choosing a college sometime in the next couple of years. But I think the question that I'd like to ask, you know, as we start this discussion, is I think if you read this story, whether you're a member of one of the denominations with a history of ties to Calvin University or not, I think parents need right now more than anything else need to ask themselves why do we want our children to attend a christian college or university what is the point what do we hope to get out of this for them for ourselves for our families for whatever what is our reasoning for sending our children there or encouraging our children to go there or even backing financially our child's decision to go to college. If you start off with that question, you presume a kind of skepticism about it. And I say this as someone, of course, who taught for 20 years or so in a Christian college situation and one form or another. I have probably spoken on somewhere between 30 and 40 different Christian college campuses during my experiences. And I've talked to a lot of faculty about these kinds of issues. And I've been on the Calvin University campus. I, I was sitting here while I go trying to count how many times I've been there. And I, I would say I've been on the Calvin campus at least six or seven times, if maybe as many as 10 during the last couple of decades. And so I know a little bit about Calvin as well and have had friends connected with that school and have had long conversations with faculty members about realities at that school. So there's a lot that parents can learn from this story, uh, in particular about kind of the, the challenges that these schools face right now, 
Although um, I would say the story, if, if, if I was going to pick a hole in it, there's maybe one or two paragraphs of additional information that I, I think would be relevant. Let me give you an example. There's a paragraph in the story that says, striking that balance, and that's the balance between defending your church's teachings, or at least not opposing them, and being viewed as diverse, friendly, and open to young people of a wide degree of beliefs on these issues of sexuality. So here we go. Striking that balance has become increasingly difficult in recent years as more and more young Americans, including students at Christian schools, identify as LGBTQ. A recent Gallup survey found that one in five Americans born between 1997 and 2005 say they're LGBT. Most younger Americans also see LGBT inclusion as a non-negotiable, which puts them at odd with conservative, older Christian leaders and evangelical institutions. Now, what I think would be interesting right there would be to pause for a moment and find out what are the growing Christian colleges and universities right now. Which ones are getting harder to get into? I mean, which ones are being more selective about their student bodies? Which ones are struggling with admissions? And I think parents who searched for that kind of information would discover that there is no, I mean, if you read that paragraph, you would assume that schools that are striving to be more diverse and schools that are somehow more liberal and inclusive on these issues would be growing more than conservative schools. And I'm not sure that would turn out to be the case, especially among schools, say, at 2,000 students or below schools that are in a position to maybe be more selective or have more of a narrower focus academically of what they'd want to do. So there's several things in here that parents can come away from with questions, not just about Calvin, but about how the issues at Calvin would then also apply to other schools. So what happened? What is the story here? Well, the story is that, and what, what we don't know from the story is whether or not Everyone who's on the staff at Calvin signs a doctrinal covenant or behavior document, a lifestyle covenant, as it's often called. We're mentioned that faculty members are supposed to affirm the teachings of the school. Now, anyone who's been around colleges knows that affirming them is not the same thing as defending them. And I would say at, through all my years of contacts with Calvin and conversations with the faculty, increasingly over the last 20 plus years, I've heard faculty, especially conservatives on the faculty, say that parents need to ask the following question about colleges that they send their kids to. Is it easier or safer to criticize the school's teachings on campus, in classrooms, public forums, etc., than it is to actually defend them. And you end up 
when it comes to LGBTQ issues, you end up with what one faculty member said to me once. He says, it's kind of like the old communism era. He said, Calvin doesn't want you to be pro-gay. At least that was not the case more than a decade and a half or so when I was talking to this particular faculty member. He said, Calvin doesn't want you to be pro-gay, but they want you to be anti-anti-gay. Now, what they mean by that is it's not that you have to stand up and openly say the church's teachings are wrong. We need to change the church's teachings. But what you have to be willing to do is stand up and say, I think that defending the church's teachings or making attempts to defend our lifestyle covenant or our doctrinal covenant, openly defending them is cruel and makes students feel threatened and it probably endangers them. And you'll recognize that kind of language from other discussions in recent decades in public life about sexuality. In other words, these are people that would all say, well, yes, I affirm the school's teachings. But the issue is, is it possible on the campus to openly try to defend the church's teachings and do that in any sort of winsome way that would appeal to either gays or straights or anyone else who is struggling with their own beliefs about sexuality or their own behaviors. Uh, the other thing I wanted to know absolutely in this piece, and I don't think we get a definitive answer, it says that the school asks people to accept the teachings. I don't think there is a reference in this story to whether students actually sign a document in which they pledge to follow the teachings of the churches that sponsor Calvin University. And I know there's no mention of any sort of um, discipline process or any sort of consequences for uh, violations thereof. And we could go on and on with ramifications that come out of this. But in this case, what you had was two gay females who decided to get married, one of whom is a staff member, notice staff, on campus. And they were trying to decide how to get married, when to get married, and who to marry them, and decided that if they had a civil wedding, they could have one of their favorite Calvin professors marry them, even if that Calvin professor was a social scientist, as opposed to being a member of the religion or theology faculty. And I would imagine Calvin still has a stricter doctrinal standards for people who teach in the Bible department than they would for some other departments. But once again, the article stresses these people are supposed to have signed a document that they will defend the teachings of the church. Calvin University is associated with the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Does the story provide any kind of documentation of that church body's stance on the issues? Oh, yeah. No, it mentions that. It, it doesn't say, however, that this is something that our, our own Richard Osling has written about at Get Religion quite a bit. There are wars about sexuality going on right now inside the Christian Reformed Church, but even more so among the Reformed Christian Church of America, which is a more progressive evangelical denomination. And that is that tiny shrinking denomination is pretty much on the verge of just imploding or exploding, however you whatever, whatever verb you want to use. 
and precisely over this issue. So we get the sense that it's an art, these subjects are being debated on the campus. We don't get the sense of the kind of financial, legal, or ecclesiastical pressure that the school might be under from, say, its board of trustees and how those people are selected and whether there have been actions at the trustee level that would affect some of these discussions. So Terry, I'm interested in the nexus of various news outlets, great and small, that dealt with this. RNS is obviously a big outlet. Here's a paragraph from Smitana's treatment here. After a Calvin professor officiated at a wedding last fall for an LGBTQ staffer at a campus-based research center, putting both employees in violation of school policy, school leaders tried to resolve the matter quietly. The Center for Social Research, part of the school since the 1970s, was allowed to spin off and the staffer was allowed to stay. Now, the only other story I could find on this was from the Grand Rapids Business Journal. And the story from about four weeks ago was just about this very uh, prominent research center associated with Calvin University spinning off, said nothing of mm-hmm. the, the reason it was being spun off. And I also note that, I go on with Smitana, things changed last week when Chimes the Calvin student newspaper broke news about the real reason for the split. This is about reporting on the parts of perhaps journalism students at Calvin University mm-hmm. that dug into the story. Which is certainly interesting. I know through the years I've come into situations on more progressive or liberal Christian college campuses. These are schools that you would assume would be anxious to have journalism departments. And often, the trustees and the administration is not crazy to have a, a journalism department because they're not sure they want a student newspaper reporting what's actually happening on their campus in places where that information could be read, especially once the internet arrived, by parents, donors, and trustees. In other words, how would trustees know what had happened with this center. It is interesting that they took, the the school was willing to take such a strong action to defend this staff member and give her an option for how to remain employed all the way to having this prominent research center spin off into a different institution, which would then apparently have its own policies and its own board. I wondered about that at that point. Would the institute to get to use the word Calvin and to be a part and linked to the school, would it still have any responsibilities to the trustees of Calvin University? I would assume not. By the way, in candor for our listeners, reading back through the story quickly, I did find a paragraph that addresses something you and I discussed earlier. Uh, let me read this. Provost Noah Tolley did confirm that all faculty and staff, including those at the center, notice that, at the center, are required to follow the school's employment policies, which bar sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. He also said that hiring managers and supervisors are required to enforce the policy. Now that's fascinating because that implies that spinning the center off still would not have settled this issue. It's also interesting, the words required to follow the school's employment policies, I would still ask, at that point, do they sign 
any kind of legal document in which they, they promise to honor the teachings of the school and the sponsoring denomination. Whether you sign something on the bottom line can often end up to be a crucial issue in any sort of legal, you know, struggles that might follow this sort of event. And trust me, we're seeing all kinds of law cases springing up related to Catholic schools, evangelical schools, generically Christian schools, etc., involving staff members, faculty members, and others who are pushing the boundaries of policies on sexuality. I think it's fair to say that it's now impossible for Calvin University to contain the story within its own student newspaper or even RNS. It will be picked up. What are good questions that reporters should be asking about this story? Well, let me put it this way. I think that if parents were about to send students to Calvin, I think the parents would need to ask some of the same kinds of questions that reporters would need to ask. And that is, what is the practical reality on the campus on some of these issues? Like I said a while ago, is it easier on the Calvin campus to oppose the church's teachings without getting into trouble, without being kind of bad-mouthed by others, without being attacked? Is it easier to attack the church's teachings than it is to defend them? Years ago, I had a chance to interview a, a Catholic priest named Thomas Burchall, a very controversial guy in a number of ways, but he wrote a book that you will find on the shelves of Christian college administrators from coast to coast, and the name of the book is The Dying of the Light, and it's about how hard it is for Christian schools to be loyal to their denominations and to actually defend the teachings of their denominations. And he got involved in a controversy where his Catholic order would not allow him to give any interviews. And I called him up and said, I realize you can't do an interview, but have you given any talks in the past that are on tape or that you have a manuscript of that you could provide for me? And he laughed and went, aha, that's, that's clever. That's a good way around this. And he gave me some information. And in it, he had the two key things that you need to know about Christian college education today. He said that there's only two basic questions that parents need to inquire about. And I'd say this has some ramifications for reporters as well. He said, number one, is a Christian school willing to stand up and say, we will defend the church's teachings in opposition to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and thereafter? Are we willing to openly stand up and say, we believe the sexual revolution has harmed millions and millions of people, adults, children, born and unborn. We stand against many of the core teachings of the sexual revolution. He said that's a very controversial statement in education, higher education, but it's even now, he said, and this was decades ago, two decades ago, it's now a controversial subject in Christian education. And then his second one, now listen to this one carefully. I think listeners will find this interesting because it's directly related to this story on this campus. Burchall said, you need to find out, does the faculty of this college 
see its primary duty, not one of their duties, but its primary duty, to be the liberation of students from the narrow religious views of their family and their home church. In other words, is the goal of the education at the school to expand students' borders beyond the teachings they learn from their parents and their pastors and Sunday school classes and their, and their home churches. Now, what's interesting, he said, now you can threaten students' perspectives a lot of different ways. The implications of this story is today you could upset a lot of students on campus by defending the teachings of their parents or their home churches. This, this could cut both ways in the current atmosphere. But his point, though, he said, you, you can upset students today by challenging a materialistic worldview, or you can upset them by challenging, he would say today, whether or not they're worshiping their smartphones. He said, there's all kinds of things you can do that will upset students. But in particular, he said these days, does the school see its primary purpose, the expanding of students, frankly, away from however their parents and their home churches view as Christian orthodoxy with a small o. Now, what does that look like? Well, at some point, parents are going to have to be much more engaged with their children on what they intend to study, and they're going to have to get on, on campus and look at support documents. I think they need to, they're going to have to be more careful these days about investigating what kind of discipline policies exist on the campus. Uh, I opened up, for example, the, uh, the Calvin University document on unbiased language, you know, and scrolled down through all of it. And you get down into gender and you get down into respecting people's pronouns and that Calvin doesn't want to do anything to offend anyone who is not sure about their gender or their gender expression or how they display gender and a lot of things like that. And I kept thinking to myself, how would any of this be all that controversial and all that relevant if the students who are coming to Calvin are signing a document in which they're pledging to honor and follow the teachings of the Christian Reformed Church on sexuality. You know, what's the, what's the line here? Yet I know just as a practical matter, once again, I, I hang out with a lot of families and quite some time ago, I'd say almost 15 years ago at this point, I had some conversations with a family who had one of their children come out as trans. And what was interesting was that when this person, this young person, was investigating where to go to college, the child very specifically chose Calvin and chose Calvin specifically because they knew that going there, their preferences would be on gender would be respected and would be allowed and even encouraged on campus. And that was well more than a decade ago. So this is not a new story. It's an old story, and I think reporters investigating it need to talk to a lot of alumni 
And at some point, they're going to need to talk to trustees if the school will make them available. And if the school will not make trustees available for interviews about this, I think we can assume the battle within Calvin is even hotter and more divisive, and the stakes are higher than what we see in this story from RNS. With about a minute here, what should, if you were advising the administration at Calvin University in order to kind of cut this off at the pass and, and get their story out there, what would you advise them to do? What their lawyers are telling them to do is just be quiet. That's not going to be an option much longer. And I think at some point, they're going to have to ask questions about faculty. Colleges are defined by two different groups of people. And these people are often, there's a lot of tension between them at times. And the two groups of people that define what a college is, in the legal sense, the body of people that do that is the trustees. But in the daily and practical sense, the group of people that defined what the ethos and the teachings and the content of a college experience are like are the faculty. The faculty and then in particular the staff who are in charge of student development, discipline, and campus life. Thomas Burchall once said to me, the, the priest I was quoting earlier, said students don't lose their faith in philosophy class on Monday. They lose their faith on Friday nights in their social life and then they learn how to justify their behavior in philosophy class on Monday. So at some point, parents, and I would also argue trustees, are going to need to start asking some very practical questions about what a school can and cannot do to defend its teachings in the realm of, quite frankly, lifestyle and faculty, staff, and student behavior. This may be painful, it may cost school students, it may lead to conversations among the faculty in public that have been going on in private for decades, but at some point, I think the world will be better served by Christian colleges that are honest about what they believe than Christian colleges that are basically attempting to hide or fog up what they believe in ways that people can't get a clear vision. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.